When it comes to creating a life of freedom and living on your own terms, your mental and emotional state may not just be useful to improve, they may also be the most important aspect of the whole endeavour. Welcome to episode 41 of the Acario podcast. It is a pleasure and an honour to bring to you a conversation that I personally hold really dear to my heart. Today I'm speaking with Martin Dunley. Martin is a therapist with over 18 years of experience and he is a practitioner of a relatively new type of therapy called the Human Givens Approach. This type of therapy is practical, it's pragmatic, it's evidence and science-based and in my personal opinion, it holds extreme promise for helping people overcome emotional and mental well-being issues, as well as trauma. We not only cover topics such as REM sleep, depression, uh, psychosis, and the importance of relaxation, but we also give some pretty practical tips and takeaways to improve your mental well-being too. Martin is extremely good at what he does, but how do I know that? because he's my former therapist. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Martin, thank you uh, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ali. Nice to see so, you. Thank you, likewise. So, uh, yeah, it's as, as I would have said in the intro, uh, Martin, I saw Martin for a few therapy sessions earlier in the year. And I want to say, Martin, thank you for that once again. It was an absolutely, um, it was a wonderful experience. I was uh, at a place where I was kind of freaking out. And you brought this this calm, kind of grounded sense of perspective to my experience that I really needed at the time. And the uh, those dulcet tones and that Irish accent kind of doesn't hurt much either. So, <laughs> so I appreciate it. That's a, um, that's that's a comment I get from some English co colleagues, and of course, I would say the opposite about their uh, particular accents. You know, uh, particularly the uh, the very succinct and pointed pronunciations that some English people tend to have. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're not doing too bad then. Hopefully, this podcast should be easy for people to listen to. Let's. Uh... Yeah, well, hope. I hope I hope they can understand me anyway. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's a big struggle for me sometimes is to refrain from using too much slang. I've, I've had to kind of tidy up the words I use, um, especially on this team as well. A lot of people can barely understand what I'm saying. Um, but uh, but Martin, so first off, I just um, I'd like just a little bit of a bit of background how you came to become a, a human givens approach therapist? Because I've, I've got a bit of an idea that you, because you mentioned to me that you did a little bit of hypnotherapy that was useful to you in the past. Um, but in our own sessions together, I didn't fully, uh, I didn't get fully like where you came from. So I'd like, uh, yes, I just want to know how, what, what, what journey have you been on that led you to be a, uh, to be a therapist and, and specifically a human givens therapist? It certainly wasn't a, um, a straight line, put it that way. Um, well, I actually started off in, in the music business after leaving school. You know, I, I worked as a professional musician for quite a number of years. And I suppose I tired a little bit of the lifestyle, the late nights, the being away from home a lot. So, um, when I sort of decided to cut that down 
you know, I was looking for something else. At the same time, I was experiencing, I just, I suppose some not, not very serious uh, emotional problems, but you know, just the usual stuff like self-doubt and a little bit of anxiety and things like that. Um, so I ended up going to see a hypnotherapist and I found out a very strange but very rewarding experience, you know. Um, I was quite amazed initially at just the ability to get into a very, very profound, relaxed state very quickly. So after a few sessions, things were improving and it just dawned on me one day, I said, maybe this is the type of job I would like, you know? So on the recommendation of that particular hypnotherapist, uh, he pointed me to a, a guy in Florida, actually, a guy called Jerry Kine, who actually passed away there not, so, not too long ago. And Jerry Kine practiced, a, a, I suppose, a very direct type of hypnotherapy based on um, the Elman approach. And so I studied both, um, I, I did that through long distance and, and also invited one of their trainers over to Ireland to do some training here. So with a mixture of both, I qualified in that and practiced as a hypnotherapist for quite a, a number of years. And it was during the latter years of that that I, I actually heard Joe Griffin, who was one of the founders of the Human Givens Approach, himself and Ivan Terrell is the other guy. I heard him on the radio, on Irish radio, on this program called the Jerry Ryan Show. And in that uh, radio item, he was talking about depression. He was actually advising uh, this particular family who had rang in looking for advice. And he explained about, as well as rumination, misuse of the imagination, emotional arousal, how all of that would be taking, taken into a person's sleep to be deactivated or at least attempted to be deactivated in sleep, particularly in the REM state of sleep. And how when there's too much stress put on that system through too much rumination, too much, too much worry and so on, that the person can wake up feeling absolutely exhausted and demotivated and then of course, that doesn't enable them to get their physical and emotional needs met in balance, which starts the cycle all over again. So I was completely uh, captivated by that explanation. It just seems so simple. So I decided to attend a, um, just a one day training on the rewind course. And that blew my mind as well, the fact that a very simple sort of non-voyeuristic technique could be used to essentially de-traumatize somebody very, very quickly. I wouldn't have thought that would have been possible to, to achieve those sort of results, you know, in, in such a short time. But Joe, in, in the, um, the workshop he demonstrated, he had also the video demonstration and the results were incredibly profound people's flashbacks and things just eliminated more or less overnight. So 
anyway, I, I sort of, I logged that experience, still didn't go ahead to do the, the full training yet, because I, I was thinking, you know, like here in Ireland, to get a sort of bona fide qualification in counselling or psychotherapy, there's the usual route, you know, there's maybe as a postgraduate, you would do uh, another three or four years training. So I investigated that. Um, then I decided to do a degree in psychology <laughs> uh, as a sort of preparation for that. Um, and while studying psychology in uh, University College Dublin, I again, you know, was was checking out the the master's programs in counselling and psychotherapy. And what struck me about some of them, at least, was that they seem to be rooted in very old ideas, namely either Freudian ideas or Jungian ideas. And the syllabuses didn't particularly appeal to me. So it clicked again in, in my head. I remembered the, uh, the human givens. I remember the workshop. I remember the radio interview. And of course, I'd read the, the, the textbook, human givens, uh, during that period as well. So anyway, long story short, I decided to do the, the uh, human givens diploma. That entailed a combination of distance learning, but also going over to London and Bristol to do some of the live trainings there. And uh, completed that. And um, I really see it as, as the next step up from my hypnotherapy practice, because it actually explained hypnosis in a way I had never heard before. It just seemed to make so much sense again. Like, as a hypnotherapist, my definition of hypnosis, if I can remember it correctly, it was something like hypnosis is the bypass of the conscious mind and the establishment of selective thinking, something like that, of acceptable selective thinking. Now that as a definition, uh, yeah, it seemed to make sense, but there was something missing. There was something mm. missing in that explanation. And when I heard the human givens uh, definition of hypnosis as a sort of artificial, art, artificial means of accessing the REM state, well, that, that's, that's quite a different definition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, a lot of, you know, a lot of hypnotherapists have been, you know, the usual stuff you, you see in hypnotherapy mar marketing Oh, you know, it's nothing to do with sleep and all of this stuff. Well, it's everything to do with sleep. It's everything to do with the REM state. Hmm. And if you think about what happens in dreams and what happens in trance states, there's a very direct uh, correlation between those. So hmm. that's, um, I hope that sort of explains, um, you know, how I ended up as a, a human givens therapist. But um, I have to say, uh, you know, the, the common reaction to the knowledge and the trainings is that it just seems to make sense. It's very practical. It does away with, you know, convoluted theories and psychobabble. It's just, you know, it seems rooted in, in, in scientific thinking. And of course, it, it is rooted in, uh, you know, brain research and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that, yeah, that, that kind of 
that answers some uh, some of my questions because it, it, you you had mentioned in passing before that you'd had some you'd, you'd dabbled in music, but I, I didn't. It, by what you said now, it doesn't seem like dabbled. It seems like you actually went in pretty hard with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, as I said, I, I, yeah, I, I suppose I would have called myself a pro- professional musician. Uh, you know, I did some touring, I did some recording, um, and uh, yeah, I did. You know, certainly when I moved to Dublin from Cork, uh, when I first arrived in Dublin in the in the nineties, uh, you know, I was doing playing in bars like five nights a week. You know, mainly uh, traditional Irish music accompanying Irish traditional musicians but I've kind of you know I'm a jack of all trades master of none when it comes to music um, so played lots of different styles of music through the years and I actually taught music as well uh, on a jazz course here in Dublin for a, for a while so yeah and music is still with me I mean you know I'm not doing it professionally but uh I, I keep my hand in, put it that way. Mm. Mm. Nice. I believe you're a musician too, aren't you? Uh, uh, more electronic music. Uh, yeah. Well, I dabble. <laughs> I dabble. Uh, yeah, I make some uh, some hip hop kind of music, but I sample old soul songs from like the seventies and eighties. It's ah. just there's something about it that's just so so beautiful. Um, but uh, but yeah. So about the so you were a musician, then you. Um, encountered some some challenges of your own had some hypnotherapy which you found to be really useful and that sort of put you on this track to becoming a therapist over the following however i mean well how long have you been a therapist for oh um well if we count as hypnotherapy i would say it's probably going back about at this stage maybe 17 18 years wow you know, but the, the human gifts is relatively recent, you know, now studying it through the last number of years, but, um, you know, in terms of becoming a, a full bona fide human gifts therapist, that's, that's pretty, that's reasonably recent. Hmm. Yeah, I, I get you. Well, the, the human givens uh, themselves, the human givens approach, it, it appealed to me, I came across it uh, a number of years ago. Um, I went through a a phase of depression and I was looking at books that would help me. And there was one book, the name of it was How to Depre- How to Lift Depression Fast, or I think that was the title. Yeah, yeah. I think I have and it on the shelf behind me. <laughs> well, it's one of <laughs> I'd be surprised to to know which books you don't have on that bookshelf behind you, Martin. That is such a <laughs> it's like a library behind you. They're all there for show. I haven't read half. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that too much. Uh, but I've I've come to realize that buying books and reading them are two completely different <laughs> different hobbies. Um but one thing about this book that struck me was how practical it was, how practical it is. Um, prior to that, I had had often get I'd often get caught in these psychoanalytical loops, where I but it wouldn't lead to any relief. Um, really, it, it just caused me to become, if anything, even more confused. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I found was really beneficial about the human givens approach when I was reading about it is how practical and evidence-based it, it is. Yeah. Well, 
funnily enough, when it comes to depression, probably one of the worst things you can do is what we call emotional architecture, where you really, you know, you start examining the past and really trying to search for root causes. And I mean, some of that can be useful. Some of that can, you know, certainly be, uh, it can maybe throw a shape on, on certain meanings in, in your life. But when you are depressed, you are in a form of pretty strong emotional arousal. It may not seem that way from the outside because, you know, some symptoms of depression in, in, involve sort of demotivation, almost apathetic state, sometimes very lethargic state. But inside you can be like a cauldron of emotions. And if you go searching for these, you know, psychoanalytical reasons for your depression, sometimes that can actually deepen depression. Hmm. Yeah. So from a human givens perspective, you know, we try and keep it practical. We kind try and keep it present based or future based. Um, and really it's just, a, you know, about identifying what physical and emotional needs particularly are missing or you're not getting met, you know, in balance. And if we can identify those, that sort of gives us uh, a trajectory then for, you know, the way that therapy might unfold. So it's goal-based, you know, it's, it's um, as I say, it's, it, from my perspective, anyway, it's, it's quite practical. Um, and it's, it does away with all the, you know, what we call psychobabble. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I found really, that's what I found really a appealing about it. And what, there was a, a description of depression that I've, I read on a, on a, so, on a Reddit post a while ago. And it, it, it just, it really, when I was going through a real depression, it, it, it really summed it up. You, depression is existing in a body that's fighting its hardest to stay alive with a mind that wants to die. And when I, when I read that, I was like, that is precisely how this feels. My body, because one of the things before I actually experienced depression for the first time, I had this, um, this, just this, this intuitive sense that depression is kind of a low emotional arousal state where everything is actually it's barely discernible from relaxation in some strange way. That's what, or so I thought until I experienced it. And then I was like, despite the fact that I was depressed, there was no relaxation here whatsoever. My body was on fire. My mind wouldn't, would not stop. Yeah. And the lethargy was there, but it was just beyond anything I'd ever experienced before. You see the lethargy can be, yeah, it, there, there could be a, that sort of physical lethargy and the body is exhausted. You know, you're waking up exhausted, but your mind is very, very active. In fact, you're putting too much strain on the mind through the, you know, excess rumination, excess worry. And of course, what you're doing during the day when, when that's happening is you're, you're activating your autonomic nervous system excessively. So this might be a good opportunity to actually explain the cycle of depression, mm. you know, how it works from the, the human givens perspective. Please do. Okay. So if we start off with saying you're not getting some emotional 
need met or a combination of emotional needs met in balance. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to worry. <laughs> why, are, why is my life not working perfectly, right? What is it about me that is making my life so miserable? Or what is it about the world or other people that's making my life so miserable? So you're trying to work out a problem and the worry is really, you know, it's, it's, it's a misuse of your imagination because it, it sort of works like this. Your imagination is future-based. So you go into the future, you imagine the worst outcomes, you get the sense of the feeling associated with those worst outcomes. You bring it back to the present and then look forward with that feeling. <laughs> my Isn't word that great? <laughs> that's fantastic so so as i say through all the rumination and worry you're 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 activating your nervous system uh, but you're not completing any of this those circuits or at least a lot of them during the day um so normally you know if we get um let's see if i can give you an example let's say you got angry at your boss or you felt angry at your boss and you decided to express that anger in the moment. Well, you've completed the circuit there. But let's say you, you get angry at your boss and you don't say anything. You don't do anything. You just keep it all inside. So that's a, an arousal of your nervous system that then has to get deactivated during your sleep. And one of the functions of dreaming is to deactivate those unexpressed emotional arousals that you've experienced during the day. And that's one of the reasons we, we evolved to dream is that you know we can suspend our natural instinctual emotional arousals because it, it sort of frees us up. If, if we were acting out everything in the moment, we'd, we wouldn't have much time for anything else. <laughs> we'd hmm. be totally dysfunctional. So we take that into our sleep. And one of the purposes of, of dreaming is to deactivate those emotional arousals. But dreaming does it in a metaphorical way. And one of the reasons it's in metaphor is so that we don't confuse it with reality. When we wake up, we don't, don't go, oh, that actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be even more confusing. So it's acted out metaphorically, and then it sort of cleans the slate for the next day. Now, that would be the ideal situation if we're not doing that emotional arousal excessively. But if we're doing it excessively, then the dreaming, the, the dreaming state, it has, to, it has to do an awful lot of work. Hmm. So you're spending excessive time in the REM state. And of course, your brain is incredibly active during that phase of sleep. And if you're doing it excessively, that's what burns all the energy. That's why you wake up so lethargic and demotivated. And of course, then... It's hard to get your needs met if you're not feeling very motivated. And so the cycle just continues. Hmm. So, you know, in the treatment of depression, well, 
we have to steer you towards getting your needs met, but we also have to lower your emotional arousal and get you to use your imagination more constructively during the day so that you're not creating all of these incomplete emotional arousals. And if we can do that, then your sleep balance returns and you wake up feeling refreshed and feeling motivated. And then of course that enables you to work in getting your needs met. Hmm. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. So I've got a question for you. When people say that depression is a, is a mystery, depression is a, it's no one really knows how depression occurs. I've heard this in, in many different places that it can strike anyone kind of at any time kind of thing. Uh, no one really fully knows about why it happens, but possibly like a lot of theories are thrown around, such as like, it's a common one being it's a chemical imbalance or a not enough serotonin in the brain, that kind of thing, depending on the yeah, explanation you hear. When people say depression is a mystery, what, uh, how does that land with you? Well, I suppose we have to make distinctions between certain types of depression. I mean, you know, something like bipolar depression, for example, you know, that may have a genetic basis to it. However, if we're talking about let's call it the bog standard depression, you know, depression where people's lives just ha don't happen to be working very well and they get depressed. And we can, of course, we can get depressed when things don't work out as we expect them to. So if someone loses their job, for example, they become un unemployed, you know, that's not gonna be a joyous occasion for anyone. It's, it's you know, they're gonna get depressed. And, you know, Anytime there's any sort of loss, it's common for people to get depressed. And the thing about the, you know, the, the serotonin hypothesis, you know, the chemical imbalance in the, in the brain hypothesis, there's no evidence for it. <laughs> there's actually no evidence for it. Well, you know, from the human givens perspective, we can see that, you know, when there's excess pressure put on that whole REM phase of sleep, that seems to explain the symptoms of depression very, very well. And, you know, some antidepressants actually reduce REM, REM sleep, which wow. can explain why a person may wake up feeling a bit better because they're not using all of that energy to excess REM sleep. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, look, as time goes on, we're, 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 we're learning new things, you know? Um, so for example, there's a person I'm reading at the moment, her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she's got pretty new theories on emotion. Emotions as, you know, she's got this sort of construction theory of emotion that essentially we construct our emotions. And if we think of depression as an emotional state, then it's kind of like um, our brains have to make the best predictions it can based on the information that's coming in. 
to our senses and, and so on. And we can't also forget that, you know, during the course of our life and the culture we grow up in, we learn certain concepts when it comes to our emotions. Different cultures may experience things very, very differently. Like I think I mentioned to you before about uh, some people in Bali that when they feel fear, they're conditioned to just fall asleep, for example. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds like a great reaction, you know. That'd be easier than a bloody panic attack. <laughs> exactly. So, as I say, we're, we're learning new things all the time, but the what I like about the Human Givens approach is that it's got this very sound sort of organizing idea which can facilitate new theories if they come along. Because it's like having a solid foundation, you know? You can keep building on top of it. But if you don't have a solid foundation, you know, maybe the walls will fall down. <laughs> if we go to, you know, some the, organize, the organizing ideas of human givens, I mean, Really, it's, it's, it's as simple as this. So the term human givens refers to the givens of human nature, as in what are our innate resources and what are our innate needs. So for example, we have a, a series of emotional needs that have been identified. So for example, we need to feel, we need security. We need to feel that we're in a, a secure environment. So you take anybody that's not in a, a secure environment, what happens? Well, their emotion, you know, their mental health will suffer. Hmm. Uh, and those environments, they can include, you know, home life, they can include work life. I mean, imagine going into work every day to a bullying bus. Oh, that might impact on your, your emotional health. Or imagine yeah. going into a home in which you have alcoholic parents who don't treat you very well. Well, that's not going to be very secure. So we have that need for security. We have the need for attention, both to give attention and receive attention. And of course, if you think about loneliness, where that attention exchange isn't happening, that can seriously impact on people's emotional health. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We have a, the need for autonomy, autonomy and control, to feel like we're in the driving seat of our own lives. Again, whether that's in our home life or in our work life. And certainly a facet of modern society, certainly in a lot of bureaucratic structures now, people's autonomy are, it's been whittled away. Mm. You know, it's, uh, I can think like in the health system now, most of the time, a lot of the time is spent actually form ticking and really logging everything in the fear that there could be some sort of litigation. Instead of actually, you know, spending time doing the job that you're meant to be doing. 
namely yeah. looking after people. And that's, the, I think that's a, a common frustration among people in the health system, particularly the non-management people. <laughs> yeah, the people who are on the receiving end of it. Exactly, yeah. So we, ha we have a need to feel part of the wider community. And again, that, you know, sort of outlines the, when people are feeling isolated, you know, feeling not part of something. See, we need, we need to be in the company of other human beings to have a sort of shared reality. People who are on their own, they begin forming their own reality. Sometimes, you know, they end up with a very dodgy version of what they think reality is. Yeah. I mean, on that note, just for a moment, it's it, it dawned on me uh, quite, quite powerfully once. Um, so for some reason, when I was when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I would often get public transport. I'd get on buses and stuff and I'd just be on my own with my headphones. And it was it was suspicious how often there'd be a person who'd get on the bus who would just be talking to themselves and they'd be in a state where it's just, they, they they were freaking out or whatever, or they just made everyone nervous or they, whatever, whatever the case is. At the time, I didn't know any better. I was like, these guys are crazy, but they would always come and sit next to me. And it happened with such alarming regularity that I was just starting to be like, why is this, why does this keep happening? There's seats everywhere, but for some reason they just come and plonk, plonk themselves right next to me. And um, they'd often just babble, just incoherent stuff. And it wasn't until years later when I, I actually watched a, a Jordan Peterson video where he's talking about loneliness and what it does to people, that I then looked back and thought, these people were probably just extremely lonely, possibly, right? And they hadn't had someone to reflect their own stuff back to themselves so that they could update their model of themselves and, and reality and stuff. So they, if they're just on their own and they're isolated for such a long period of time, it's as you say, they're going to form this reality. It's never going to be tested or challenged or corrected by anyone. And because we, we can't isolate ourselves and, and live as well as we might. And then they just get on a, a bus. And then I must have just looked approachable or something. And then they were so desperate for that, that they were willing to just plonk themselves down and just, it just all came out. It had to. Yeah. And then it, when I, and it kind of, it really transformed my, my view on it. And it made me sort of really respect how dangerous psychologically loneliness can be, especially if it's chronic. Yeah. Well, how can you check that you're sane? <laughs> you, you, you can't just check that on your own. Right? <laughs> you have to have some sort of shared perception of reality. Yeah. You know, with another human being. And if you're in agreement, then arguably you're sane, at least within the system that you're, you're living within you know yeah um and of course if if we add more people to the mix and, and and they have a shared perception of reality then arguably that's sanity now of course that can be uh go awry as well in 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 terms of people getting caught up in cults and things like that you know but yeah that's another story you, i'm just after reminding myself of that film uh you probably remember the name that it was the tom hanks one where he's, he's shipwrecked or something and he ends up on an island 
Castaway. Castaway, that's it. <laughs> well, do you remember what he did with the basketball? Yeah, Wilson. <laughs> yeah, right? So he needed he needed something that had at least some, some resemblance of, of a human face to have a conversation with. And that was one of the things that enabled him to stay relatively sane on the island. Hmm. Yeah. And it was interesting. That's, that's interesting. You say that. And I'm just remembering something now. So when I was, um, when I was a kid, we had a, like a school trip to, uh, I think it was Castleton in the Peak District and we did some caving and we went into uh, one of these caves. I think it was called Devil's Mouth Cave or something. It was a really big cave. We went in and uh, the teacher, the, the guide asked us to all turn our lights off or switch our lights off and just sit there in the silence for a bit. And uh, she told us a story about how a, uh, a caver got trapped down here and he, he was eventually rescued, but he was here for a really long time. And eventually he started talking to his toe and he started, he came out and he started hallucinating. He had basically been hallucinating that his toe was a talking person and was a, a personality that was just conversing with him. And he, he came out and he was describing himself having arguments with it and disagreements and everything. So he had a full, complex, messy human relationship with his own toe in, in a period of extreme isolation um, and it made me wonder, it makes me wonder now, uh, if that was true, there's always a bit, an element of embellishment to these things, but if that was true, it makes me wonder if there is a part of us that it's like an immune system that kicks in. Uh, that's like, we need to talk, we need, we need some form of contact. And even, even if it's with something seemingly arbitrary, like, you know, just like our own toe or something, our body, our mind needs that in order to just stay remotely sane. <laughs> Yeah, well, I remember an experience. Uh, there's a, a place in Cork called Mitchellstown, and it has these underground caves called Mitchells, Mitchellstown Caves. And I remember going in there one time with a guide. There was a number of us went in, and he said, "I'm going to I'm going to turn off all the lights, okay, just to give you the experience of absolute pitch blackness." So he turned off the lights and of course, I mean, you couldn't see even your whole, your, your own hand in front of your face. So he quickly turned it back on and he said, if I had left that now for another 30 seconds, everyone would be hallucinating. <laughs> so if we're getting no sensory impressions at all coming in through our senses, the, the brain can create those for you. <laughs> which is which is crackers if you if i think about it that's just the brain can just make now, stuff of course up. It, could drive, it could drive you insane of course yeah yeah there's there's i think just a few more of those emotional needs just while yes. i have them in my mind yeah let's get back to those yeah and uh, but but that that's a very good point you make about about um how the brain can compensate hmm. for that lack of interaction, you know. And of course, you know, people can start creating their own worlds with their own imag imaginary characters in it. And, and, you know, we, 
we look at a person, we think they're talking to themselves, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're hallucinating other people or other creatures and they're, they're talking to them, you know? Yeah. And of course, those hallucinated people may actually be talking back. <laughs> <laughs> it might, as I say, it might seem perfectly sane to them. I mean, kids have imaginary friends. I had an imaginary friend for ages. <laughs> so that, that helped me. Exactly, yeah. So we've, I think we were on community there the last time and, you know, we were talking about obviously uh, not feeling part of the wider community. So we've another need uh, for privacy, which is kind of going the other <laughs> end of the scale now. So we do need time to ourselves, time to reflect, time to, you know, some downtime. And it's a, a very important human need, particularly, particularly uh, you'll see this people living in environments where they just don't have an opportunity for privacy. And it's incredibly stressful. Mm. You know, um, I'm sure you've seen, there's been many TV shows where they take kids, you know, city kids who've never been outside their city and they take them out into the countryside. And it's like, they can't believe it. They can't believe how much open space there is. You know, some of them have, have never even seen a cow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have that need for privacy. We have a, a need for status. Um, you know, we need to, to feel that our status is acknowledged in some way. So even if we're part of a company or something like that, you know, we, we need to feel like we're playing a, an important role. And um, again, that's one of the perils of a lot of modern systems, a lot of companies where people's status has been eroded because of that bureaucracy, because of that uh, fear of litigation that comes from, you know, somebody having some responsibility, you know? Yeah. We have a need for competence and achievement. So we need to feel somewhat stretched, you know, if we didn't have that need, we'd probably do nothing. <laughs> We also have a need for meaning and purpose, which again, that's a, we're getting into a sort of deeper philosophical musings now, but you know, people can get meaning and purpose from lots of stuff. Uh, obviously people can get it from their fate. People can get it from their work even, you know, people can get it from just feeling part of something bigger than, the, than themselves. Yeah. So all of these needs, like, if you think about, imagine a situation where you're getting all of those needs met in balance. You'd be pretty much guaranteed good mental health. Okay. And that is, you know, part of the organization, uh, organizing idea of the human givens. These are the givens in terms of our emotional needs. Now we have resources to enable us to get those needs met. Mm. And we have innate resources. 
which I, I can go through in a moment if you wish. So, yeah, that's the emotional needs. <laughs> so those those are the emotional needs, and that's the that's the main bedrock organizing idea of human givens, of like the the explanation for. Uh, poor mental health is if these emotional needs are not being met in balance yeah yeah now of course we have our physical needs as well um you know so that that's that's a given also yeah but the thing about you know the notion of getting these needs met in balance is quite important because any one of those needs could become greeds as we say <laughs> ah okay so so, for example, imagine you have an excess need for attention. Now, we know a lot of people in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> but look what happens when they get excessive attention. And it's like constant validation. And then that becomes this excessive need. Well... And that's taken away very suddenly, which it is in many cases of people in the music industry. Look what happens. Yeah. Trying yeah, to that... get in, in other in other ways, in, in lots of times in very destructive ways. Yeah. So that's the so that's where the the importance of getting your needs met in balance comes in. Because if they're not being met in a balanced way, it's possible that a person can overcompensate in another area. And that can lead to instability and, and problems down the line. Well, if you take any one of those needs and, you know, it's, it, as I say, it becomes agreed, it's, it's to excess. But it stands to reason that's going to throw out of balance all the other needs. Hmm. So... Let's say, you know, take the, the need for autonomy and control. Well, imagine that being an excessive greed where you feel you need to control everything, all aspects of your life, but not only yourself, but other people as well. Well, that's not going to do your long-term emotional health very well because people will get tired of you. <laughs> They're not going to want to be in your company. And then, of course, you're going to end up isolated. Yeah. Which is going to compromise your need for attention and your need for being part of the wider community. <laughs> you see? So it's there's a balancing act in with these needs. Yeah. Have you, I don't, it's a long shot, Martin. It's a really long shot. But I don't suppose you've ever heard of a, of a video game called The Sims. I have heard of it, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, the Sims refer to some sort of simulated life or something. Yeah, it's quite a bizarre game when you think about it. You, you uh, create a character and you basically live a life. You you uh, meet, you have friends. You build, you make a you like you make a house. You get your job and everything, and you basically live a human life, but virtually, and. It's kind of bizarre, really. But the, um, the the reason why I bring it up is because each of your Sims has like 10 needs 
that are like a, a, a bar that, and it's always, always these, um, these needs are being, some are low, some are high, like social needs, physical needs. And I just thought the creators of the game, they, um, they must have really put some thought into that. What does a human being actually need? Because they actually cover the needs quite comprehensively in the game. And if you're Sim, uh, the needs for social life or something drop low, they usually start freaking out or messing up at work or whatever. And, and if, the, if a bunch of needs are not being met, then they'll just break down, they'll lose their job, everything will just go south. And um, it just made me wonder, because it's like they've actually got that really well. And in very, it's, it makes me wonder then, in very much the same way, we are kind of like a sim. We actually have these needs. And just because we can't see them represented on a bar in a neat and tidy way doesn't mean that we don't have these needs and doesn't mean that if we're feeling... Um, pretty bad for a while it doesn't mean that you know maybe we do have these some of these needs that are in the red so to speak but we're just not aware of them yeah and you know speaking of all things virtual um or you know getting into the technological arena like if we take that need for attention well, of course we're talking about a quality of attention so the attention of someone on a screen, for example, is not going to be the same quality of attention as being there in their presence in the flesh. Because there's a lot of things that will be missing in, the, in that sort of an interaction. So I'm looking at a picture of you now, and of course I can see, you know, I, I can recognize things in your expression and so on, but I'm not seeing the full you, <laughs> you know. And um, you know, I'm not seeing how your foot is moving right now, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so there's a there's a lot of that stuff that we'll be missing, you know, um, you know, in screen time, in, in in screen interactions. Now, it's a wonderful technology. It's amazing that I'm able to talk to you, and you're over in Lisbon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm here in Bray in. County Wicklow in Ireland, and uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, certainly I'm I'm old enough to remember the um, the first generation of Star Trek, where <laughs> it was sort of intimating uh, ideas of this sort of technology, but you know, probably in ways that Gene Roddenberry couldn't have imagined, you know. Um, so it's. Um, yeah, it's 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 quality attention, you know. Mm. Like if you take a, a relationship, you know. Um, again, what if one person is seems to be giving all the attention, and the other person just seems to be taking all the attention? Well, that's not a quality exchange, you know. And certainly in the in the area of relationships. If one person can help another person to satisfy their needs. So in a relationship, for example, if there's mutual need satisfaction, well, that's gonna indicate a, a pretty healthy relationship. But in the, in the exchange, if there's an imbalance, that's where problems arise. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, um, it makes me wonder because, one thing we talk about often on our channel is the effects of the uh, the attention economy, um, and it's you know with with Instagram and Facebook and everything essentially 
creating a business model around harvesting our attention and creating systems that that do that extremely well. And it makes me think, because we do have such a need for attention, and it makes me wonder that in modern society, the attention economy makes it so that that a person's need for attention has can easily be hijacked by sort of you know social by social media and stuff like that um just as a quick stop off point i wanted to ask you um in your experience because uh, you've been doing this for for a while since social media sort of came on the scene did you notice a difference like did you notice a shift in people like did you notice any did you notice anything change basically you may you may not have but i just wanted to just wanted to double check while we we're on the topic well, I think every generation sort of, you know, comes with its own, its own problems. Uh, and certainly with social media and the way it's designed, you know, the way it's designed to capture our attention. And quite often it's doing that by firing off what we call the orientation response. It gets us emotionally aroused. Like, you only have to look at Twitter, for example, which is, it just seems to be a, a constant, you know, barrage of insults and um, people opining about all sorts of things, but doing it in a way that's very emotionally charged. Now, the social media companies, they know if they can get us emotionally aroused and they can fire off this orientation response, you know, they can capture our attention, but they can also influence us in, in ways that is quite on the hand, you know. Um, and, and then couple that with, you know, firing in some uh, personalized advertisements <laughs> at the same time, you know, trying to hook us into becoming consumers and promising, you know, uh, that these personalized goods can be a way of fulfilling your your needs. Hmm. So it's a it's a whole system, you know. It's a whole system, and I mean, it's not all bad. There's some wonderful aspects of it, you know, but there's a lot of ambiguity in social media, which is not good for the human mind. Hmm. You know, the human brain, it doesn't like uncertainty. It doesn't like ambiguity. It always is trying to, you know, we've talked about pattern matching before, you know, so we have our instinctive templates for, for things that exist outside of ourselves. And when we make a pattern match, that's sort of a completion, you know, it's, but Social media can keep us guessing. Hmm. It can keep firing things at us that, you know, have a certain level of ambiguity to them. And again, that's it, that can sort of hijack us. So again, with these technologies, there's, there's good sides and bad sides to it. But um, I suppose, you know, if, if you were to be completely cynical, well, it's all about money generation, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's the attention economy, you know? 
it's the the harvesting of attention for for bottom line profit the curious thing as well is certainly for young people like think about young people who are you know they're developing their their sense of self well it's like every young person on social media has an avatar where they're putting up their ideal self mm. But they can't hope to match that ideal self with what actually happens in reality. And if that ideal self gets criticized in any way, that can have a serious impact on someone's real sense of self. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an artificial world and it's um, certainly for young people, you know, it's, um, it can be very, very confusing. It can, well, it doesn't do wonders for, for their self-esteem and self-confidence because there's an enormous power in with a flick of a switch just being able to isolate somebody. As in block them? Yeah, block them. Um, and if you think of that from an evolutionary point of view, you know, this, the, the most dangerous thing that could happen to you, you know, hundreds of years ago, was to be isolated from your community. Well, you wouldn't have the protection of the community. Imagine having to fend for yourself and be constantly on alert to dangers mm. without yeah. that support. You know? um, now, I, I also have to bear in mind that, you know, I'm not uh, a digital native. <laughs> and so for young people, this is just their normality. This is their, you know, they probably think someone like me is, is you know, I'm just behind the times or something. Mm. But, but you can see how it impacts on, 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 on mental health. Yeah, of course. And of course, then there's the whole cyber bullying uh, you know, if you remember growing up in school, like if you if if you were bullied, well, it's probably going to be one or two people, but you could be bullied by hundreds of people simultaneously on social media. Think about that. Yeah, yeah, it's inc incredibly stressful. Yeah, so um, so yeah, we had a, we had a brief. Um, little stop off as to just the effects of of social media and that and I can see that came as a result of us talking about our, our needs and one of them being attention which is being it's currently being harnessed for the attention economy um, but I just wanted to delve just a little bit into what our givens are because often when I tell people about the human givens approach they often ask me what that name even means well yeah so I, I mentioned to you like we have these needs, but we also have our innate resources. Okay. Mm. Um, so we don't, we, we don't come into the world as blank slates because even while we're in the womb, there's some instinctual programming taking place. Actually, curiously enough, a lot of that is happening in the REM state while we're in the womb. Right. Okay. And that's one of the functions of the REM state. It's, it's a programming state for programming in these uh, innate resources that really come through 
you know, are programmed through our genes, essentially. And when we're actually dreaming then as well in the REM state, that's preserving our instincts. Instincts. It's like by resetting them, it preserves them. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And and I just keep, I, I noticed that we keep mentioning the, like we keep mentioning REM sleep. And I think I want to circle back to this at some point, just to emphasize it a little. Well, let's look at the, some of those resources. Um, now, of course, we come into the world pretty helpless and we're dependent on our caregivers for, for our needs, both our physical needs and our emotional needs. But as we develop, you know, we develop, um, you know, a long-term memory, for example. So imagine life without a long-term memory. You know, we wouldn't be able to add to our knowledge or learning. So that's a, a very important, the short-term memory is a very important resource as well. So I wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you if I didn't have a short-term memory. <laughs> yeah. I just forget, forgot everything instantly that you just said, <laughs> right? Yeah. It'd be pretty hard to, to navigate, wouldn't it? So we also have the ability to build rapport with other human beings. And now that happens best really when you're in the company of somebody. We can do it over this technology, obviously. We, we, can, we can do that. But, um, you know, one, one thing I do see not just with younger people, but also with adults is um, how much time they're giving, how much attention they're giving to, the, to a screen. I remember being on a bus one time and a person came in with a pram and a little baby in the pram, looking out of the pram and the adult was just on the phone, you know, looking into this phone. The little baby is like, give me some attention, you know. Mm. Yeah. So, so we have that innate ability to build rapport, but it's, you know, even from the beginning, you know, it, it's like the expressions of a child, the expressions of a baby even are almost designed to capture our attention for that attention exchange. They do that quite well. That's why that's the, is that that's basically being cute, right? Like if a ba like a baby being being cute and gurgling at you and making making faces and stuff. Of course, puppy dogs can do that too. <laughs> yeah, they do that. They do that well as well. That's what I was thinking. So we have um, another very important resource is we have our imagination. Now, if you think about the imagination as a sort of reality simulator. You know, we can actually, we can imagine something that doesn't exist. We can imagine something in the future and we can simulate, you know, taking certain courses of actions and test it out in our imagination before actually doing it in reality. Now it comes at it comes at a cost. That ability to imagine comes at a cost, and it's one of the the reasons why human beings have mental health problems at all. 
you know, the fact that we can actually simulate scenarios and simulate the future. Well, what if we're misusing our imagination all the time? And we're just imagining the worst all the time. Yeah, worry and rumination, right? Yeah, exactly. And of course that gets us emotionally aroused because there's a part of our minds that doesn't really distinguish too well between what's real and what's imaginary. So I think uh, Ivan and Ivan Terrell and Joe Griffin, they've written about this. There's, um, they might say, you know, maybe 40,000 years ago, there seemed to be an explosion of creativity as evidenced by, you know, things like cave paintings and stone circles and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they, they looked into that and they said, well, what must have happened? What must have happened, you know, at that time in, in a very sort of profound way was that human beings, or at least some, they were able to access the REM state while being consciously awake. And that's hmm. really what a trance is. Like when I did the session with you, for example, and I'm doing some guided imagery with you, I can see your eyes going like that. So you're actually in the REM state while awake. Okay. <laughs> Certainly felt like it. You know, like I, during um, during the, the rewind session we did, I don't think I've ever, as far as I can remember, I don't think I've ever visualized something so vividly because I'm, I'm more of a, I think in words, it's hard for me to visualize something palpably, but in, in that state, I was visualizing the forest and everything. It was right there. I could almost smell the place I was at. It was, it was, yeah, it was fascinating. So you're saying that was like a accessing the REM state whilst conscious. Yeah. So yeah. And that's, that's, that's enables us to use this reality simulator and to imagine solutions to problems, for example, but it also kind of be, makes us slightly psychotic. As in, we're, we're in, a, in a sense, hallucinating something or hallucinating a scenario or, or a situation, you know. And you can see that when these mechanisms go awry, so, you know, for example, in the case of psychosis, mm or people are hallucinating all sorts of things, sometimes very uh, scary things. But it comes from that, abit uh, that ability, that innate resource of the imagination. You know, if there was no imagination, there, there would be no psychosis. Mm. Yeah. Because it would all be confined to your dreaming state. Now, I have to say something about psychosis, uh, or at least one definition of it is, it's like the processing of reality through the dreaming state. Or let me put it another way. It's like 
um, the processing of waking reality to the dreaming state. Hmm. So it's like you're dreaming, but you're awake. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. So that can explain why sleep deprivation brings on hallucinations. Mm. Yeah. Because the body needs REM sleep and it's going to get it whether <laughs> one way or the other. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, even if people who have been sleep deprived, there'll, there'll be a rebound effect where the brain will try and catch up on the missed REM sleep. Now, it can only do that to a limited extent. But, um, you know, that, that, that's one of the, the symptoms of, you know, let's say <laughs> insomnia or people who have been sleep deprived through force, for example. So it's a, it's a very interesting area. So these mental health problems, you know, they really stem from these innate resources. But it's just when these systems go awry. You know, even if we look at um, something like, and I don't want to call this a disorder, it's just, it's a different way of functioning. Um, if we take, say, somebody on the autistic spectrum, where there can be, you know, let's call it damage to your, your, your guidance system. So you're not able to pick up on things like social cues and not able to have the same levels of ability in, in building empathy, for example, or building rapport. Yeah. So then it, you know, your way of navigating the world is, is it can become very, very fixed. You know, we need, the thing about all these instinctive templates that we have is that they need to be inherently crude, but flexible. So for example, um, let's say you, you have a template in your, in your brain for what a chair is. Now imagine going into a scenario where there's loads of chairs, but it doesn't match the exact template that you have in your brain for a chair. Then you'd say they're not chairs. <laughs> so it needs to be flexible and it needs to be quite crude in a way. That makes sense. <laughs> entirely. Yeah. Yeah, entirely. So we've covered the emotional needs. We've covered the innate resources that we have. There's there's a few there's just one or two more things on, on those resources. Like we have a conscious rational mind as well, of course. And yeah. that that enables us to check our emotions and question question things that are happening. We also have the ability to know through you know, unconscious pattern matching. So if you think about anything that we perceive from the outside, 
it's like our brains are trying to pattern match everything that we perceive with something that's in there in some sort of template form. And of course, um, sometimes there can be a pattern mismatch, which can spring us into this almost state of consciousness, you know? It's like, oh, that's a surprise. That's a, an expectation there that got thwarted in some way. Mm. And that can sort of jolt us out of, you know, it can jolt, jolt us out of, a, out of a, a daydreaming state, for example when something unexpected happens. So, yeah, it, it, the whole notion of this metaphor, you know, from a McGinnis perspective, we, we call the, the brain a, a metaphorical pattern matching machine almost. Yeah. You know, because if you think about it, like even language is a metaphor. Words are metaphors. A word is not a thing, <laughs> right? And of course, we could get you know we could get deeper on this. Uh, anything outside of ourselves has to, you know, in terms of perception, has to come through our senses. But as Lisa Feldman would say, our, our brain is in a dark box, you know, and it has to trans use all of these signals into a form that can be represented by the brain. Mm. So we are reality generators. Right. Yeah. So when, um, so when, uh, when a Jungian would say, talk about projection, for example, and how when we perceive reality, we're, <clears throat> we're actually projecting most of it. It's like we're perceiving reality through the filter of our own template. Um, we are, but um, yeah. And again, if we're human beings, you know, we, we that perceptual apparatus operates according to certain constraints. Hmm. So for example, we don't have the same acuity of hearing that say a dog would have or we don't have the ability to perceive much higher frequencies like a bat does. But we may have better eyesight than a snake. You know? <laughs> yeah. One, one thing that, that fascinated me when I came to you, um, you explained about pattern matching, because at the time I was experiencing um, a, a degree of anxiety I'd not experienced before. And your explanation on pattern matching was really fascinating to me. It's quite amazing how even during that experience, I could still be fascinated by things, even though I was freaking out. Um, how a pattern match can occur um, beyond the level of your conscious recognition of it. So if you experience an event that's kind of like that's, that's somewhat traumatic, then in the moment of that occurrence, your brain is gathering all the information it can uh, to prevent this this thing from happening again, or to signal danger if 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 this thing could possibly happen again, but it it may also gather information that that it might just go a bit haywire in its gathering of data, 
Um, yeah, and of course we're getting into the whole no, uh, area of trauma here now. Um, so it's actually a good way to illustrate that point. If we take uh, somebody suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, well, they may, they may have had this intense life-threatening experience in which there's sensory overload. So imagine, you know, somebody getting mugged or somebody in a car crash or there's a whole host of situations we can imagine, but certainly, uh, you know, in the military, um, there's a lot of opportunity for, for trauma, you know, on the battlefield and so on. Mm. Um, so there's this, there can be this sensory overload. And what happens with that information is it gets trapped, but it gets trapped in sensory form. It's not in language, it's not in some sort of narrative form. It's just sensory information. And that can get trapped. I can get trapped in an area of the brain called the amygdala. Now, some people who, who experience traumatic events manage to process the trauma over time so that it becomes what we call a narrative memory. So it's like, that sensory information will be passed via the hippocampus in the brain to the neocortex where it's then converted into this narrative form in which you can throw a frame around it and have some perspective on it. Hmm. But imagine it just gets trapped in sensory form in this area of the brain. Well, that means whenever there's a pattern match to any of those elements and it's trapped in this area of the brain that's associated with the fight or flight system okay now it's associated again if you read lisa Feldman, you know she's she's turning a lot of these ideas on their head in terms of emotional circuits and so on but let's say it gets it's gets trapped there and then there's a pattern match to whatever some element of that sensory information. Well, it's like it can trigger a situation in which the person believes they're right back in the traumatic episode again. So for example, flashbacks or, um, and it may not necessarily even be visual. It, it could be, you know, it could come in any sensory form the person might just have this inexplicable, overwhelming sense of fear. Mm. So you mentioned the rewind technique and what the rewind technique is designed to do is to take that sensory information and to turn it into a narrative memory where then you can have the perspective. And then you can know, and your brain can know that that is something that happened in the past. It's no longer a threat to you now. Mm. 
Now, in order for that to, to happen, well, we have to activate that particularly that, that template, the trauma template. Now we do that in a very safe way, a very uh, controlled way. And then in a state of deep relaxation, remember we, we need to get your emotional arousal down to a sufficient level so that we can reprocess and re-encode that traumatic memory and put it where it needs to be. And that's what the rewind process is designed to do. And I mean, you've experienced it, but you know, I've used it many times with, for various things and it never ceases to amaze me. And in fact, there's, there's an organization in England called uh, PTSD Resolution that work exclusively with uh, military personnel or people who are trying to reintegrate back into civilian life, but who have experienced all sorts of traumas, you know, in, in battlefield situations and so on. And this particular charity uses the services of human givens therapists who are trained in this technique. And they've had amazing success with it. Now there's, there's more than just the rewind technique, obviously there's the human needs and there's, you know, ways of reintegrating people back into civilian life. But, but as a technique, it, it's just, it, it's, anyone trained in the approach is just, uh, they're always quite amazed at the transformation that occur, can occur in a person when they've had that. Yeah. It was fascinating to me because the memories that I brought to the table um, now since running the doing the rewind technique with yourself, um, I don't remember the I don't remember the memories in the same way. I remember them because uh, I remember during the during the technique, I was in the woods and you were asking me to replay the memory on a TV screen that was a few meters away. And it's as though I, it's as though I sort of, the memory now is not of the event. It's of the, me sitting in a chair in the woods, replaying it back on the TV screen. It's like, that's, that's a memory that's, I, I recall that a lot easier than the original memory, which right. is one, one permanent change that occurred as a result of just a single session. So for, for the, for the, treatment of trauma, traumatic memories and such. It, it sounds to me like this thing has a lot of promise, a hell of a lot. Well, it, it, it has, but it also has a very good research base at, at this point, you know? I mean, there are various methods of reprocessing trauma, you know, the somatic methods, there's things like emotional freedom technique, there's kind of a tapping procedure, there's eye desensitization, whatever it's called. And yeah. um, I mean, there's other methods that work, but again, what um, Joe Griffin and, and Ivan did was, <clears throat> this is actually an old NLP technique. Uh, it was called the, I think it was originally called the visual kinesthetic double dissociation technique or something. Um, 
But what they did was they refined it because they discovered that it, it, it works some of the time, but not all the time. Uh, one of the keys in, in the refinement was the activation of the template, but also the reprocessing done in a very profound, relaxed state. And they found that that made it more reliable. Now, does it work for 100% of people? No, <laughs> but nothing does. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. So, um, Martin, I, I'm, I'm checking out the time and I have, this conversation has brought a, a whole host of new questions for me, but I'll, uh, I'll save that for hopefully when we can maybe get you on again at some point in the future. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, the time has fly has flown. So that's a good sign. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great sign. It's, it's, it's enjoyable for me to talk to you too, Ollie. Yeah. Wonder, wonderful. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. And, um, I, I would have mentioned this in the intro by now, um, but the the re the reason why I, I feel the reason why I, well I think that this approach is it holds some real promise um, is because it is it is practical it is it, it, the forefront of science in this area and. One of the things, as I mentioned at the start of this whole conversation, was that that really I struggled with when I, whenever I experience a mental health issue, it's usually my my thinking mind becomes a fundamental part of the problem. Usually, it's my ally. Usually, I can I can solve problems with it. And it's amazing. But when it's emotionally aroused, it will jump to real extreme conclusions about things <laughs> that feed the emotion, and I can almost witness it happen. One thing that this approach really did for me. Um, is to ground ground things in a, a firm basis in 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 science and a pragmatic and practical approach. And it, I think a lot of people would benefit from this. I, th I really do. And I think just a basic understanding of the men their emotional needs is something that people seem to seem to lack in my experience. And I think this could really help people in that area too. Well, certainly, um, you know, when I was first exposed to this this uh, particular approach. Uh, one of the, the things we learned very early on, and I can still hear Joe Griffin saying this, he says, emotional arousal makes us stupid. You know? <laughs> uh, we might do it in a, a slightly more politically correct way now, but, but it's like this, you know, if you're emotionally aroused, you have to think in black and white terms. So your thinking is, is narrow. When you're Emotion, when you're when you're relaxed, you have a far greater perspective in your thinking. It's far wider, more choices, and that mm. makes complete sense. From again, from an evolutionary point of view, because you know if you think of the fight and flight response, for example, well, you know your brain doesn't want you philosophizing in the moment where when, <laughs> when you're under threat. It doesn't want you debating and calculating trajectories of speed and some some wild animal coming towards you you know it's 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 saying right run or fight or <laughs> freeze maybe uh, yeah so so it is a protective mechanism and you know it's it's i mean emotional arousal can be useful <laughs> in those sort of situations but, just not chronic but as a way of you know trying to think 
logically and rationally, well, the two don't go hand in hand because in order to think logically and rationally, we need to be in a relaxed state. Yeah. So yeah. That alone, that alone as a, as a recipe for mental health is, is actually quite profound, you know, and teaching people something as simple as just being able to calm themselves down. Like we mentioned, uh, when I saw you, we mentioned the 7-Eleven breathing technique, for example, which is just a way of reducing your emotional arousal. And I, I've actually seen profound changes in people just using that technique. It's, it, it was a game changer for me when I was experiencing uh, my real bad anxiety. Um, it's just, and I still use it now. If I, if I, if I, if I check in with myself and I notice that my emotional arousal is up or like I'm starting to get a little anxious, palm sweaty or whatever, for whatever reason, I just give myself a three breath reset, uh, all through the diaphragm, seven seconds in, 11 seconds out three times. And that do that it genuinely does something. I can feel my whole body just, it's not as if I'm immediately just like all zened out. But it just it stops things from going from bad to worse and spiraling. It just keep, puts the lid on it and brings it back down slowly. It's really really good technique. Yeah. Well, if you think about the breath in, you know, I mean, even if we make the motion of breathing in, <laughs> you know, we we tend to do this. So it's up, and it's kind of effortful, and it's uh, whereas breathing out is kind of more releasing, more relaxing. So the extension of the outbreath, making it longer than the inbreath, doesn't have to be seconds, by the way. It can just be a count of seven and 11. It could be a count of five and nine. It doesn't really matter. It's just the, um, the outbreath, if you make it longer than the inbreath, you breathe diaphragmatically and do it through your nose if possible, makes it even better. Mm. Um, that will activate your parasympathetic nervous system and induced a relaxation response. And, uh, you know, for most people, they like it. You know, there's some people get a bit freaked out with tuning into their breathing, but that can be for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. Uh, for, for a lot of people, it works very, very well. Yeah. You noticed um, a client who changed from one session to the next after learning that technique, right? That's right, yeah, that's right. Uh, particular client who remain nameless but this particular person arrived more or less clinging to the, to the walls just in a such a highly aroused state of panic uh it was you know it was difficult to even have a conversation but before the person left you know i i explained about 7-eleven i actually printed something out with a few instructions on it and um, I really didn't know whether I'd be seeing the person again, but another appointment was made and the person came back. And it was like a completely different person, just using that technique alone. But what was great was the person <laughs> was highly motivated because of the severe panic and anxiety. And you see, that's that's one thing. Pain can make us incredibly motivated. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the person 
practice that a number of times a day. And actually, if you think about it, take that need for autonomy and control. Imagine the sense of control a person can experience knowing that they can de-arouse themselves, that they can calm themselves down. It's, an, it's, 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 it's very simple, but it's, the effects can be incredibly profound. Mm. Yeah. It's that self, the ability to self-regulate. Yeah. And of course, all this stuff was known hundreds of years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, with all this, the Stoics and stuff and obviously the Buddhists and kind of yogic breathing techniques and all that stuff, it's, this goes back thousands of years. Yeah, exactly. It's like good that science is catching up though. That's one thing that I really like. Um, is that science is, is catching up to this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always fascinating. And certainly even the new developments, as I said, are, are uh, fascinating. So um, mm. that's, that's uh, you know, as, as I've mentioned, I, I think when you have such a good organizing idea that it can always be built upon, Whereas, uh, again, in my view, some you know certainly in in, in the uh, the field of psychotherapy, some of the underpinnings of some methods, they don't facilitate that innovation. You know, um, so whenever anything becomes fixed, it's going to die. Yeah. I think that's a good point to end on. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, uh, yeah, I've, I've, so I've got a few more questions. I'm going to ask you another t another time um, for sure. I, I mean, I, I hope to have you on again on the podcast at some point because this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And um, I want to, I really want to spread the word about the human givens approach. If you would mind, Ali, I, I, I'd just like to direct, uh, if people are interested in finding out a bit more about this, um, there's the Human Givens Institute, which is the HGI. If you just key in HGI or Human Givens Institute in Google, it'll come up. And that particular site, as well as you know, having a, a register of practicing therapists, it's it's an amazing resource of information, all sorts of articles and so on on, on that site. There's the Human Givens College, which uh, People can take courses, um, they can do it online as a precursor to maybe doing, considering taking the, the, the full diploma. And um, yeah, so there's obviously lots of books being written as well. Um, there's the, the main book, Human Givens, is just the title. And as I say, reading that was, uh, certainly a, a profound experience for me you know it just seemed to make sense on every page and um, if anybody wants to have the experience of a human given session they can find me on my website which is mindtherapy.ie so there you are <laughs> fantastic all of that stuff um yeah all of that stuff that uh, martin just mentioned I'm going to put in the show notes for this episode. 
uh, the number of which is yet to be determined. But uh, it's going to all be in the show notes, guys. So all the books, the Human Givens uh, Institute, the Human Givens College, uh, as well as Martin's um, website and ways to get in touch with Martin if you want to have the experience that that I did. And I, by the way, would highly, highly recommend Martin's work. Um, he's excellent at what he does. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend that. That's all going to be in the show notes for this episode. And as always, guys, if you would like to leave a voice message for us, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash Icario. And with that, enjoy yourselves and we'll speak to you next week. Take care, guys. Thanks so much, Ali. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Martin. Take care.